News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. And I would say most of us don't want to be reminded of our failures. They probably, you know, lurk back there in our minds, but do we willingly take them out, take a look at them, think about them? Probably not. So would you go to a museum that is all about some of the biggest failures that we've had in society? There are some pretty good ones, though, when you think about it. I mean, remember Google Glasses? I mean, sure, we all do. They didn't last very long, did they? And what about this one? This one is my favorite because I don't even remember this one. Colgate Kitchen Entrees Frozen Dinners. Yes, there was such a thing from the makers of toothpaste. Now, these and more are on display at a pop-up museum called the Museum of Failure. And Dr. Samuel West, the founder and clinical psychologist, thinks it's important to remember those failures. And Dr. West is with us now. Thank you for being here this morning. Thank you for having me on the show. Dr. West, why is it important for us to remember these failures? Well, it's important to understand that failures are what drive progress. So without these failures, we wouldn't have much of the technology, much of the, the, the things that we take for granted. So innovation requires people to take risks, and those risks sometimes involve failure. Okay, so how did this all get started for you? Uh, I've been working with as an innovation consultant for a while, and I realized that the, one of the biggest obstacles to innovation within most companies and organizations is, you know, we're all human. It's the fear of failure. And it's really difficult to be an innovative company or organization if, you, if you're not willing to take some risks. So if, if a company isn't failing, they're probably not innovating either. Interesting. So tell me about some of the um, failures that you've collected for this museum. I mean, it's everything from food products to high-tech stuff. Um, I could probably fill an entire museum with just smartphone failures. <laughs> uh, we have, <laughs> I mean, we have, I mean, we have Amazon smartphone there, for example, that didn't make it. Had features that nobody wanted. Um, we have food products. We have Olestra, which is one of my <gasps> favorites. I remember is, this. It ne- it never made it to Canada, though. Thank God. Um, it was uh, a, f- a zero calorie fat substitute. Yes. It was launched in 96. Do you remember what the problem with it was? Yeah, it caused uncontrollable diarrhea is what the problem was. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, sure, you didn't get fat eating those chips, but you had to spend your your evenings on the toilet. Dr. Um, West, I was a health reporter when that came out, and I just remember the the craze for Olestra was so big, it was like the next big thing, and then right away it was like, oh no. (laughs) Well, one of the problems with it was that um, Procter & Gamble actually got it right, but um, somehow, you know, people eat a lot of, they eat more than the recommended serving size of potato chips. Um, but then, you know, when it was fat-free and, like, not bad for you, people ate, you know, too So much of it, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's too funny. Okay, what about things like um, uh, New Coke? New Coke's a fascinating story of how uh, Coke Pepsi did what they called the Pepsi Challenge. I think this was in the 80s. It really was. Ladies there. And they um, had people try Coke and Pepsi. And uh, most people liked Pepsi better than Coke. Coke did their own research and found out that people actually liked Pepsi better. Um, So they changed their recipe to make Coke taste more like Pepsi, which means a, a little bit sweeter. And 
you know, people went crazy, like, don't touch our, our Coke. And Coca-Cola realized that, you know, it's not just the company that owns the brand, but the customers also own the brand. And it was a big fiasco. At the end of the day, people, you know, got, um, they started hamstering Coke because they thought it would, you know, go out of production. And Coca-Cola actually sold a lot. And yeah. it sort of, you know, it, they made them some money, but the Coca-Cola executives were pretty clear and like, no, you know, this was stupid. We were not that smart to be able to, you know. <laughs> we didn't do this on purpose. This. Yeah, we didn't. <laughs> yeah, um, no, it, it happened, but it's not thanks to us. <laughs> but also every company seems to have one. Like you mentioned Pepsi there. I remember Pepsi had a product called um, Pepsi Clear. Remember that? Yeah, Crystal Pepsi. Oh, Crystal gross, Pepsi. gross. <laughs> I've actually tried it. We had we had an extra one at the exhibition in Brooklyn uh, when we opened a couple of weeks ago. And I actually opened it and we tried it. It's it's pretty bad. I mean, it's old by this day, but it, but it's actually, wow. it tastes like a cheap soda. Okay. Mm-hmm. What are some of your other favorite ones? There's got to be a lot of food related ones, I would think. I mean, there are a lot, of, but well, the food industry is really good at sort of trying new things. So it's unfair to, to pick, you know, to single them out. But I mean, some of the other, some of the other sort of classic items are the Sony Betamax, Apple Newton, um, these sort of the, the DeLorean sports car, these are classics that, you know, be- iconic classics that belong in the museum. And then there's some, you know, weird, strange ones and weird ones. Um, I like the classic ones, like the Ford Etzel. It's a, it's a classic one where uh, Ford tried to innovate by changing the design, but people weren't, you know. Yeah, they didn't I, that, like that's it. a big one. It was, that's a horrible looking car, though. When you look at it now, you're like, what were they thinking? Yeah, what were they thinking about that? But I mean, and a lot of these things, you know, they were they were failures, especially the older ones. They they were, you know, failures at the time. But then, you know, everyone loves a dying race. So, like everybody loves like something that's that's going to disappear. And there's, you know, some of these items. I have a water kettle uh, from Italy, uh, Philip Stark, their famous designer. It's an absolute failure of function. It looks cool, but it doesn't work. Uh, and those things are expensive now because, you know, they're almost like, you know, they're collector's items because they were a failure. How popular is the Museum of Failure? Uh, well, the one in New York is insanely popular. Uh, even in my wildest, you know, dreams, I never expected it to be to be sold out on the weekends. Um it's yeah it's the new yorkers get it they uh they have that that sense of humor and that sort of perspective that's needed and museum of failure is like right up their alley wow okay but this is a pop-up museum right like it travels elsewhere doesn't Mm -hmm. it i would like to see Mm -hmm. this so where else is it going yeah um, i wish i could tell you and and promote it but i don't know so um it'll probably end up in one of the bigger cities in the united states uh, uh, next after New York, but um, I, 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 I wish I could tell you. Um, is, you have it, to go on the website and is, check it out. <laughs> is there advice for us, some Dr. West here, but that we can take from, I don't know, celebrating some failures? Um, I think the thing I've learned in working with this for five years uh, is that, um, you know, don't be, I think we overestimate how bad failure is, you know, both in a business, on a business level but even as on a personal level we we think and we imagine it as much worse than it actually is people people are quite forgiving if you own up to your failures and you don't try to hide them or you know deny them people people are very happy to forgive you when you try to you know make bold 
take bold risks and then things don't work out. It's not as bad as you think. Hmm. Okay. I, I love the fact, though, that you feel that this is the road to innovation, though. This is how we make bigger, better things. There's no question about it. When and you, there's anything you, any kind of technology, any, even, even you know, social uh, innovation, uh, or as you as a person, personal development, any part of that is about you taking some risks. And when you try something new, you know, push, you push, you push yourself, and you you test new things. You're you're likely going to fail, at least in the beginning. And if we don't accept that, it's you know, then we become complacent and nothing happens. That is so true. Do you have a Facebook portal there? <laughs> uh, how did you know? Did you have inside information? No, or? I just I just remember that that was like that's a fairly recent one. It was I think it was only about five yeah. years ago, and there were commercials everywhere for this thing. And then I wondered yeah. suddenly, like, what happened to that? Nobody bought it. Of course, yeah, nobody no, bought it. We actually, it's a new. It's fairly. It's a fairly new edition. It doesn't look like much, but the story there where Facebook just pushed this, and at the same time, Facebook was dealing with their. You know, people didn't trust Facebook. Uh, their their trust was sort of under, was being undermined. And people are like, wait, am I going to have a camera, you know, constantly on with Facebook? Yeah, exactly. To me? I don't think so. <laughs> I love it. Listen, thanks so much for talking to us this morning. Great. Thank Appreciate you. Appreciate that. Dr. Samuel West is founder of the Museum of Failure. Now, they are in New York right now, but you know what? They do plan on moving it around, Dr. West said, but you have to check their website to find out if it's perhaps coming anywhere near us. I would love to check this out because, you know, he makes an excellent point. Sure, some of these products are epic failures, but uh, they, they're they there for a reason. We innovate, we improve. And sometimes you look at them and go, what? What were they, what were they thinking? Look, the Ford Pinto. I'm sure that's one that everybody can remember. What a terrible vehicle that was, right? Uh, the Arch Deluxe from McDonald's. Remember that? Yeah, nobody really wanted to eat it. It didn't last very long. There's so many big ones. Um, I found a list of some that are just make you shake your head, like Cheetos Lip Balm. Who would want Cheetos Lip Balm? Yes, these things did exist. The Laser Disc. Remember when everybody thought the laser disc was going to be the next big thing in movies, or sorry, in, in being able to watch that? And the Segway. Now, if you're of a certain age, like me, you remember in, in the 90s, late 90s, when people thought this thing was going to be huge. It was going to revolutionize the way that we go everywhere. The Segway. And not so much, right? This is Mornings with Simi. What does it take to graduate from high school? There are a lot of factors that go into helping a student do that, and many of those factors are sometimes beyond a teenager's control at that point in their life. So for many, that seemingly simple act of you know getting up and going to school has so many challenges built into it. And if they can't make it across the finish line to get that diploma, chances of experiencing issues such as poverty, crime, homelessness, drug and alcohol abuse all increase. So the benefit for kids to graduate then is for all of society but is society doing enough to help those kids? Well, joining us now is Dr. Arthur Sweetman, a professor of economics at McMaster University and Ontario Research Chair in Health Human Resources. Thank you for joining us this morning. Good morning, Simi. Happy to talk. Is it possible, Dr. Sweetman, to predict which students are more susceptible to dropping out of high school? So we looked at that as part of BC's basic income panel which you may remember a couple of years ago, was interested mm-hmm. in trying to reduce poverty and deal with poverty issues in British Columbia. And we discovered using 
simple administrative data that it was quite straightforward to predict as young as age, as, as sorry, grade four or so, which students were least likely to graduate from high school. So that gives us lots of lead time because we can we are pretty good at predicting who's going to have problems later in life and later in school. So what were some of those factors that went into that? Well, partly you can just use the the old foundational skills assessment tests and teachers evaluations. We only used information uh, that were that the governments already collect as part of the education program, or maybe I should say the schools already collect. We wanted to see, given what we have already, could we predict who was going to be at, at risk of not completing high school and by virtue of not completing high school at risk of further negative outcomes later in life. And we could do a pretty good job of that in that prediction. Okay, so was it the skills on the test that were problematic? Like, what were the signs? There's a variety of things. So the the skills were one of the factors that we're we're good at predicting, but lots of other things were as well. Um, You know, the teachers provide a lot of feedback of a lot of information on students at that age. And using that information uh, really, really helped us in, in predicting uh, who is going to have trouble later in school. Okay, so what kind of trouble then? And like at what point does it start to show up? It starts, well, in grade four or younger, it starts to show up and it, it sort of accumulates throughout the school years, uh, the problems. And the key thing that we're pointing to, though, is that, that we can turn these pro- these problems around, that we have a real possibility of developing good programs to help children to overcome these these recognizable, early recognizable uh, risk factors. Okay, what kind of programs do we need to put in place then? Well, that's a good question. And the answer is we don't entirely know yet. And what we propose in in our work is that we develop a system for identifying good programs. One of the weird things is, is that good programs to help children are usually expensive, but expensive programs are frequently not very good. And so we need to sort through the programs that we're offering now and potential new programs to try to find the the small number of really good, successful programs among the large number of potentially good programs. You know, we like to think of it as as similar to, this may sound unusual, but I I come from the health sciences background, similar to, to drug trials. You know, we have a lot of candidate drugs that might be successful, might be able to help people. And we have a whole system of testing to figure out which ones are actually going to be helpful. And I think what we want to introduce is a similar system of testing for students because we or for these programs, I should say, because we have a bunch of programs. Some of them work, some of them don't. And we're not always sure which are the right ones to put forward. So so we're not actually advocating for any particular program. We're advocating for a, a system to figure out which are the good programs, which are the ones that work the best. Okay, so how important is this though, Dr. Sweetman? Like just having some of these programs at a younger age, what kind of a difference can that make? Well, they can make very large differences. There are some examples of good programs in Canada and in other countries that make very substantial differences to to students later in life. Uh, They they improve their quality of life and they're, they're pretty good for society as a whole in the sense that Investing in programs to help children can have really big payoffs for for the government, for for the rest of society later in life. So, like, are governments paying attention to this? Then it sounds like a lot of work went into this, but you really want—I guess—you want to see some results. Yeah, so I think governments are interested. That's why they did the BC Basic Income Panel, and now what we're trying to say is 
we have a lot of good information. We need to take the next step. And the next step is, you know, proposing some programs that we think are going to be good and then trying to sort out which ones really are good and which ones are worth investing in and which ones should be, you know, ignored or dropped. Is it hard sometimes, Dr. Sweetman, do you think, to convince people that, hey, listen, this investment now, because I think people sometimes think, well, this is just going to cost more money, right? But this investment now will pay off with savings later? I think that's, that's our whole thing is that we want to make investments that do pay off. And when we make good investments, we get really big payoffs. The problem is some people are in, in our society are distrustful because we know that a lot of programs don't work very well. And what we're advocating for is the need to sort through the programs to figure out which ones are trustworthy and which ones are less trustworthy. So that as a society, when we invest money in our children, we're investing in the right programs to help the children, not the wrong programs. And Dr. Sweetman, thanks for your time today. Thank you. Bye-bye. Dr. Arthur Sweetman is a professor of economics at McMaster University. They took a look at you know children's success in graduating from high school and how that one thing, they said that indicator will really determine kind of the cost of society later on, that if somebody doesn't graduate from high school, then their risk of experiencing things like poverty and homelessness and drug and alcohol abuse actually increase. So Early intervention is the key, according to their report. This is Mornings with Simi. There's a lot about the rapid use of artificial intelligence that gives me pause anyway. I mean, too much, too fast. Too many old sci-fi movies like The Terminator make me think, have we really thought about this? And clearly, I'm not the only one here. The Future of Life Institution has published an open letter to tech companies to pause the development of AI. We're talking about a letter signed by nearly 2,000 experts in the field, including people like Bill Gates, Elon Musk, and more. And they're arguing that we don't know yet what the power of this is, and we should stop and think about it. Now, the letter referenced multiple studies conducted by the Existential Risk Observatory, and Otto Barton, the director of that organization, joins us now. Otto, thank you for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. What kind of studies have you done looking into AI? What are your concerns? Yeah, so uh, we're an organization that's uh, um, focusing on informing the public debate, so we're not doing that much research ourselves. Uh, but we are forwarding research from organizations such as Future of Life Institute, the ones that uh, set up the letter, but also Future of Humanity Institute in Oxford and the Center for the Study of Existential Risk in Cambridge. Um, and they have done a lot of studies on AI safety, uh, and they've mostly concluded that uh, human-level AI is a significant existential risk, uh, and therefore, for the moment, it's definitely unsafe to, to run uh, programs like this. Okay, what does that mean when you say existential risk? So an existential risk is a risk that could alter the long-term future of humanity. Uh, and there are a few ways in which this could happen. And human extinction is the most obvious one. Uh, human extinction is definitely altering the long-term future of humanity. But there are a few others, like a permanent dystopia, um, but also a collapse of civilization that is unrecoverable. So this is meant by existential risk in the academic uh, literature. Okay, and why do you see that happening? What is it about AI that poses this risk? Uh, so AI... As long as it is not of human level, uh, then many people don't think that there is a, a large existential risk. But when it does reach human level, uh, then you pass a number of thresholds. And uh, unfortunately, we seem to be fairly close to human level, much closer than people thought uh, until recently. Uh, so when AI does reach human level, um, it could improve itself. So right now we are, of course, uh, improving artificial intelligence ourselves. 
And when AI can do any cognitive task, at least at our level, which is the definition of artificial general intelligence, um, then AI could also improve the state of AI. So potentially its own code or at least code of other uh, AIs. Uh, so this is uh, um, still a theoretical argument, uh, but the point does come close or does seem to come close when AI could really uh, improve the state of AI. And that would uh, might lead to an uncontrolled intelligence explosion. Because right, there doesn't seem to be any thinking about it up, up until now, does it? It just seems like advancement after advancement. Yeah, there is. There, there has definitely been thinking about this for about a few decades or the history of the, the field of existential risk even goes back a little further. Uh, but it has definitely not been mainstream concern, and not a lot of people building the technology um, have worried about it too much. Although, actually, the leading labs now are kind of an exception. OpenAI and DeepMind, especially, have been concerned about existential risk as well for uh, for a longer time. But it's it's definitely much more in the in the mainstream uh, as of late. Yes. Otto, do you think there's any evidence then of these? AI creators, these you know, technological advances, stopping and thinking about this now, of them um, taking a pause? Uh, they're definitely thinking about it, or at least some of them are, but stopping and taking a pause, I, I don't think they will do that, uh, at least not voluntarily. Um, they think that if they take a pause, then others will uh, will continue, so uh, they, they don't seem likely to do this. So I think if we're going to have a pause, and uh, I signed the open letter by Joshua Benjo, Stuart Russell, that you were referring to uh, before, and many other AI experts as well, so I do agree that we should have a pause, uh, but if we, if, if we really want this, then I do think the uh, federal government of the U.S. will need to step in. Really? You think it's that close, like that's what the government should do, step in? I think they should, yes, uh, because I don't think those labs will stop by themselves. This is the thing with human nature, isn't it? Is that it always seems to be we're racing to move forward, but in this case, perhaps we're not fully thinking of what the consequences are? Yeah, it's a very human thing, and it's, I think it's also a very human thing to uh, turn back at the last possible moment. Um, so I do hope that we will <laughs> turn back this time at the, at the last possible moment. Uh, but of course, we could have seen this coming for uh, for a longer time. And some people did do some preparatory work, but um, yeah, there is a lot of pressure right now uh, building up for sure. What can the average person here do? Like, what can I do about this? I would say... Um, it's still a bit of a taboo or a, a little bit of a sci-fi topic to talk about uh, um, existential risk or human extinction risk um, because of AI. I think getting it out of there, so simply make it uh, a topic worthy of discussion, uh, that would already help uh, a lot, to be honest. So especially if you have a, um, a podium like you in your, your radio, um, then I, I think it would really help to, uh, to discuss this. Um, and furthermore, as an average person, it really depends on your position, of course. Um, if you're in academia, for example, you can do research. If you're a student, you can call upon your university to do research in this, uh, in this field. Um, but you can also use your political power, perhaps talk to your representative, um, write a letter to a newspaper. Um, I, I think all of these things are useful. Is it enough for uh, like the regular person like me to also say, I'm not going to use this? Uh, I don't think that will have much effect, to be honest. Uh, it might have a marginal effect. If you're not going to use it, then you're not providing any data for the AI to train on. Um, but realistically, um, there's enough data around, so it will affect anyway. So I think most of the danger is in the um, is in the, the training of the AI before people are actually using it, and not necessarily in the deployment. So I, I don't think boycotts will do that much uh, at this moment. We have a lot of work to do. Otto, thanks for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Such scary stuff, right? That's Otto Barton, director of the Existential Risk Observatory, about the value and all of us taking a step back in this race to use more AI and say, maybe we should think about this first. 
This is Mornings with Simi. You know, sometimes you come across something on social media and think, oh, that is brilliant. I love it. It Happened to me on the weekend. And when I describe it, though, you're probably going to think I'm a little bit crazy, but I think you have to see it to believe it. It was the brainchild of our next guest. He took pictures of all of our Canadian prime ministers and turned them into 1980s heavy metal lead singers. I mean, I know. I know, even as I describe it, I think that sounds crazy. But when are you ever going to look closely at a picture of Sir Wilfrid Laurier, I ask? Well, you are, if you look at these pictures. Craig Baird joins us now. He also happens to be the host of the podcast, Canadian History X. Craig, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. Boy, these really took off. Does that surprise you? It really did, actually. Um, When I put it up, you know, I kind of had my my usual first few clicks and, and retweets, and then... I think within about uh, 10 minutes, I had 100 retweets. And then from there, it was just constantly, my phone was buzzing constantly for the rest of the day and through the weekend. Okay, so where did you get the idea of taking, you know, pictures of prime ministers from 100 years ago and turning them into 1980s rockers? Well, I've been seeing pictures like this starting to appear on on social media. And I know there was one person in the United States who uh, made the uh, presidents as uh, wrestlers and such. and th- So I thought it was a really good way to kind of get people interested in Canadian history and learning about our prime ministers, because I think probably most people can maybe name six or seven prime ministers, and we've had 23. So I thought, well, this is kind of a cool way to do it. It's fun, uh, and, you know, it makes makes people interested in Canadian history. And so I kind of just started putting it together. It took uh, a few hours because you've got to get it right and, you know, use the right prompts and everything. But I think it, uh, it turned out pretty well and people seem to really enjoy it. Oh, no, I loved it. So where did you do this? How did you do this? Well, I use a service called MidJourney, which uh, is an AI generator. And um, it's initially free for people to use. You can do a few generations. But um, if you want to do more, you have to pay for it. So I thought, you know, with what I do with podcasting Canadian history for a living and sharing uh, stuff on social media, this was a really great way to kind of get people interested. So I just kind of started figuring out what would be a way that people would really enjoy it. And I thought, well, you know, we all think back to the hair metal days and wild hair and, and such. So why don't I do something like that? Because I wanted to do something different than what others had done. And I just started working on prompts for the Canadian Prime Minister, hair metal, singers, wild hair, that kind of thing. And it just kind of went from there. <laughs> and the best thing about this I found is that some of my favorites are the prime ministers that like a lot of people probably don't think about. For instance, uh, number six on your list was Sir Charles Tupper. Great one. I love the <laughs> Wilfred Laurier one. I love the John Diefenbaker one. Do, so do you think this is just a great way to get people to learn a little bit more about Canadian history? Oh, absolutely. I've had a lot of people uh, comment or, or message saying that they didn't know about these prime ministers. Uh, you know, they started looking up these prime ministers and learning more about them because they all had really interesting impacts on our on our history. And that was really the entire point was to get people looking into Canadian history and learning more about it and learning about, you know, the prime ministers, like you said, uh, you know, Sir Charles Tupper, who only served for uh, 69 days, but had a really big impact on Canadian Confederation or Wilfrid Laurier. And because they were funny and very interesting, it was a great way to kind of open that door for people. How do you how do you do this? How do you dig into Canadian history? Like you must you find it fascinating, obviously. 
Oh, I do. I've always loved Canadian history. I was first kind of inspired to learn about it with the Heritage Minutes and then Canada People's History. And then I've been making Canadian History X since 2019. It's my full-time job now of just getting Canadian history out there. And there's so much out there to learn. Like I, I cover the good, the bad, the weird. And it's this misconception out there that Canadian history is boring and that's uh, something I really want to change. And these pictures was kind of a way to do that. I mean, when you look at the picture of Wil- Wilfred Laurier screaming uh, at the camera or you have uh, Sir Robert Borden with his massive pompadour and mullet, you look into those people and see what did they do and how did they shape Canada to be what it is now. And I would also tell people don't overlook number 16, Joe Clark, because that was a great one. That was a great one. What are some of your favorite stories, Craig, about Canadian history that you've unearthed that you think people really need to know about? Oh, well, I mean, there's so many good ones. I mean, like I said, there's dark chapters to our history that we definitely need to explore. But then there's really interesting, fun ones. One that I always like to tell people is the story of Ken Carter. He was this guy in the 1970s. We called him the Mad Canadian. And he was trying to jump the St. Lawrence River in a car strapped to a rocket. And there's a wonderful documentary about it uh, that was made in the 1970s from the National Film Board. Uh, But many other things, you know, learn about our governors general and the things that they did uh, and how you know, we were able to kind of push away from being just a colony or a dominion of England to being our own country and the process that that took. And, you know, learn about our prime ministers, people like uh, William Lyman Mackenzie King, who served longer than anybody else in Canadian history. And, you know, he was very into the occult and he'd attend seances to speak to his deceased dogs and his mother and even Wilfred Laurier. Even Wilfred Laurier, that is very true. So how did you get started on this? Was there one particular story that fascinated you that you thought, I got to learn more about this? I think it was just a process with uh, Canadian history. Like I said, something like uh, Canada People's History really kind of sparked that for me. And I think within that show, the story of David Thompson, who explored or uh, surveyed much of Western Canada and the Columbia River. And he was joined by his wife of 56 years uh, along the way. They raised their children as uh, he surveyed. And he was kind of the first person that I really started looking at as a Canadian historical figure. And uh, even today is my favorite Canadian historical figure. And so from there, it kind of just builds. And then, I, you know, you read books and you start delving more into it and you just keep discovering amazing things. Well, I would say, I would argue it's, we haven't done a good enough job in this country of making Canadian history uh, more approachable. And maybe that's starting to change with podcasts, do you think? I really do. When I started uh, my podcast in 2019, there was only a few Canadian history podcasts, and now there's much more. And I think that's really good because we're getting many different angles of people exploring Canadian history. Back in the day, we had Pierre Burton, who, you know, wrote wonderful books on Canadian history, and he's one of my favorite authors. Um, But there wasn't really a lot beyond that. I mean, you did have other writers and and other people exploring Canadian history, but it maybe wasn't as accessible, and maybe people didn't find it as interesting, or they thought it'd be boring compared to American history. And so uh, with podcasts, with things like AI-generated art, or even just social media, I think people are starting to learn more about it. And like I said, the good, the bad, and the weird. Well, Craig, I loved it. I thought you did a great job with this. So where can people find this? I I think everybody should see this. So where can they find it? Well, they can just uh, go on to my social media. My uh, Twitter handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. And I have those generations. I have the premiers generated, uh, iconic hockey players, country music stars. And I'm always taking requests. Because like I said, you got to pay to do this. So I figure, you know what, I'll do this for people if you get some interest in Canadian history. I do love that. The, The premiers one, the Canadian premiers one, what was the theme of that one again? 
Uh, that was also a hair metal one. It seemed to be kind of a good, uh, really is. a good path to go down, and people really enjoyed it. Yeah, you can't go wrong with that. I loved it. Craig, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Oh, thank you for having me. Craig Baird is the host of the podcast Canadian History X, but also has a lot of fun on social media. So on his Twitter account, Craig Baird, B-A-I-R-D-E-H-X is where you'll find him. Uh, he did... He took all the pictures of all the prime ministers of Canada and created these AI portraits of them as 1980s heavy metal hairband, uh, you know, performers. And they are genius. Check it out. You'll learn more about Canadian prime ministers in a more entertaining way than you probably ever have, actually. This is Mornings with Simi. We in this province are kind of waiting to see what happens with the RCMP in Surrey. Will it stay? Will it go? The force is making headlines, though, right across the country. And that is because of the Mass Casualty Commission's report from Nova Scotia, where we saw the behavior of the RCMP and command and officers and the hours and then the couple of days after that shooting took place in April of 2020 was incredibly questionable, right? So many decisions that went wrong that shouldn't have happened there. So what we see in that report, could that potentially impact the future of the RCMP in Surrey? So we thought, let's talk about that this morning. Rob Gordon joins us now, a professor of criminology at Simon Fraser University. Rob, thanks for being back with us. I'm happy to do so. Now, what you read through the report then from Nova Scotia, did anything in there really surprise you? Um, no, I, I think we could see this all coming. Um, and the, the details were um, even even more alarming. Uh, several of the volumes, or one of the volumes in particular, had a lot of information, a lot of detail about, uh, about what happened and, and where things went wrong. So uh, the report itself, uh, I thought, was excellent and... Uh, uh, entirely consistent with what we thought was going to come down. Do you think, though, that that report from Nova Scotia will have an impact on what is happening in Surrey? <laughs> well, um, <clears throat> most of the point is will have an impact on policing in British Columbia because Mike Farnworth uh, is facing uh, three uh, three scores uh, as he sits down, tries to um, make head a tale of what's going on in Surrey and comes to a decision there. Number one, of course, is that we have an all-party committee report that uh, came down very firmly, I think, in favor of uh, releasing the RCMP from contract policing in BC. Um, That's number one. So if that's the case, then... Uh, that will have an impact, and I'm sure that uh, it's already been weighed. Um, the second is um, the uh, Nova Scotia Commit Casualty Mass Casualty Report itself, which points to shortcomings. Now, the interesting thing is that BC and Nova Scotia, uh, even though we're you know, thousands of miles apart, we share a number of number of problems uh, when it comes to policing. Um, one of which is this uh, mixture of municipal and provincial policing uh, or mixture of of, um, uh, municipal and RCMP policing in the province. This is a a mixture that doesn't really work. And you can see that happening or what happened very clearly in Nova Scotia was that there were some breakdowns 
Um, and that's a place that has three models of policing. Number one is the regional policing dealing with Halifax Dartmouth, which is a relatively recent uh, development. The second is uh, municipal policing, places like Truro. And the third is the RCMP that polices the bits in between, as the saying goes. Um, that That is going to always lead to problems with, mm. um, with, with uh, communication and systems uh, in operation in those police services. They're not... They try to be consistent, but they're but they're not. Right. So this was one of the major problems. Do you um, think then that, that demonstrates to us that perhaps the model, the way we have it set up, where we have some RCMP and some municipal, and that it just doesn't work? No, it doesn't. And, and there's been countless discussions of how to amalgamate police services, particularly in the, the two major metropolitan areas in BC. Uh, and it's at an impasse. Nobody can make the decision, even though it's glaringly obvious that we should have, at a minimum, uh, regional police services for those two uh, areas. Now, the important thing is that the, what the all-party committee did was to come down very firmly in favour of, uh, of a single provincial police services. We've had this before. We got rid of it in favor of uh, RCMP contracting and some municipal contracting. And uh, now we're back in this in this pickle. Uh, and part of the problem uh, is that nobody will make a decision for the long term. A lot of it is politicians fiddling around, uh, you know, while Rome burns. And oh. it, it's... It's been a major problem here. Well, isn't that what we're seeing in Surrey, though, right? These are each politician, each yeah. new mayor is making a short term, what seems like they're thinking it's a long term decision. It's not. It ends up being a short term decision. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's insane. Um, and Mike Farmworth, unfortunately, uh, has been presiding over the whole thing. He, he probably, you know, would rather it all go away, but it's not going to go away. And, uh, uh, it's going to get worse if he doesn't act on it. Sooner or later, he's got to bite the bullet. Uh, and I think now is probably the time uh, to do that. Um, uh, the question is, which way does he go? Uh, if the RCMP are going to undergo major reform, that major reform is going to affect contract policing in British Columbia. Uh, and that's a recommendation coming out of the mass casualty report. Um, then... There's going to be uh, changes. Uh, the RCMP may melt away um, and, and just resume federal policing roles, um, or you... it may come up with some other uh, other form. But I, I don't I don't think so. I think it it's days are numbered. That's the bottom line here. Rob, do you think though? Does the RCMP want to stay in the business of local, like municipal detachments, or would they rather be? Do you think just a more national force? Oh, that's a very good question. You know, will the RCMP take care of this by simply withdrawing from contracts? Um, I, uh, that's, a, that's likely to be a federal government decision. Listen to what Pierre Trudeau, oh, Pierre, gosh, Justin Trudeau said um, about wanting to act on this and make decisions and act decisively. Uh, we'll see whether that happens or not. I, I mean, I'm sure the RCMP and especially the new Commissioner, poor fellow, um, is, or would rather not be in this predicament. Um, 
but bottom line is they 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 have to change. It's been it's an organisation that's been massively resistant to any form of change. Um, and the interesting thing is a signal as to what may well come down is the uh, Nova Scotia uh, Commission report recommendation that they disband uh, depot in Regina. So training of the RCMP uh, will change dramatically over the next few years if the report's recommendations are uh, adopted. Right. Uh, so That's a big if, though, happen. Rob. That's a huge if. Rob, oh, yeah. thank you so much yeah. for your time this morning. We appreciate that. Okay, you're welcome, Stu. That's Rob Gordon, professor of criminology at Simon Fraser University, talking about the future of the RCMP. And that's the thing. It's an institution unwilling to really change. A lot of the recommendations, by the way, that were in this report were in a report from almost 10 years ago, uh, dealing with the aftermath of uh, RCMP officers who were shot in New Brunswick. You may remember that case, too. And those things weren't acted on. And it was the same problems illustrated in this report, too. So I think it makes what we're watching happening in Surrey that much more fascinating at this point. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it was April Fool's Day on the weekend, and sure enough, there were a ton of people trying to prank others on social media. And from what I saw, some of them were actually uh, pretty good. And yes, some people fell for the jokes. And in some cases, you know, people that you think might have known better or should have maybe known better, which got us thinking about the idea of gullibility. How gullible are we? Is there something in our human psychology that makes us more susceptible to falling prey to these kinds of jokes and pranks? So we thought, let's go to the experts on this, right? Jeff Hancock joins us now, founding director of the Stanford Social Media Lab and the Harry and Norman Chandler Professor of Communication at Stanford University. Jeff, thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you, and good morning. Is this a busy time for you, like busy time of year for you talking about gullibility? Absolutely. April 1st brings out the the best of the gullibility for sure. That and uh, Valentine's Day and romance scams, of course. Those two are pretty busy times. I can imagine. All right, well, let's talk about this. So is there, no matter how smart you are, no matter how smart you think you are, are we still susceptible to falling prey to some kind of prank? It's so easy to blame other people and, and call others gullible when they get tricked, but we all do. You know, even me, April 1st, my best friend, Mike Woodworth, he said he was in uh, in the hospital because he had so much snot in his nose. He had to go and have a like a procedure done. I was like, oh, my goodness, that's terrible. He's like, ha-ha, April 1st. And, you know, so even I, somebody that studies deception, uh, can can be duped. And it comes from actually a really important psychological uh, phenomenon called the truth bias. That is that we believe people by default, unless there's some reason to not suspect somebody. And uh, it's what trust is based on, and it's why living in Canada or the U.S. can be so great, because most of the time we're not being tricked or duped. And so trusting others as a default is the right thing to do. Okay, so that's just a built-in thing in our psychology, right? Is that we are just naturally trusting people? Yeah, deep down, you know, a lot of people, scientists would argue that the reason or the way we evolved language uh, it requires that you believe the other person, at least at first. So this idea of a cooperative partner. And so for us to use language the way humans do, you need this truth bias. Hmm. Okay. So it doesn't, does it have anything to do with our personality types? Like are certain personality types less likely to be scammed or susceptible? Yeah, there are some personality types that are more uh, suspicious. And sometimes that's, that comes from the job they're in. So if you're a cop or a lawyer um, you know, you may be more suspicious in general because you've seen how well, actually people do lie. 
Um, and then there are some um, sort of situations that make you more gullible. So if you're feeling really lonely, perhaps you've gone through a divorce or lost a loved one, then you might be more vulnerable to these kind of romance uh, scams where people are trying to trick you into falling in love. And so it's sometimes kind of person, but it's often the situation the person's in. You actually mentioned uh, language. How much of a role does saying the right thing or language play in us being able to be tricked? Like, does that trigger something when we hear certain words? Yeah, there's definitely, you know, especially when we're getting talking about criminals and these scams, they're practicing their language all the time. One of the ones that targets older adults um, will say, hey, it's your, uh, you know, granddaughter or grandson, you know, Mark, I'm in London and I've lost my wallet and I need money. And so using, you know, sort of words or concepts that would be unusual, like a, a criminal wouldn't know those, that can sometimes trigger it. Another one that criminals use a lot is time. So they really make it seem like it's urgent. Like you got to do this now. If we don't do it right now, then, you know, bad things happen or you're not going to get this good thing. And so, yeah, they're very practiced at, at figuring out what is the most persuasive uh, language to use to get you to do something. And are all of those things just kind of built into us or can we build resistance to that? We can definitely build resilience. And so knowing some of these main persuasion uh, techniques is important. So I've mentioned time. That's, uh, that's a really important one. Another one is, um, you know, if it's coming from a friend or somebody that you actually know, you're a lot less uh, likely to be, um, you know, duped or tricked, you know, outside of April Fool's, of course. But if it's coming from somebody that you don't know, uh, on the Internet especially, then you should be suspicious. You, sh- you shouldn't have that truth bias. But we just want to like friend. people, Jeff. We just right. We yeah. want to we want to like them. We want to believe they are good. Why is that? Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> it kind of goes I against. I feel like our protective mode. Well, if you if you watch any of the the Last of Us, right? They're in a in a world where it's falling apart, and you really can't trust other people. And there's other countries where that sort of level of trust isn't there. Russia and Brazil have a lot of corruption in the government, and so there's a lot less trust than say in Canada or the U.S. And life is harder. There's a reason that our economies do so well is because we normally can trust each other to do the right thing. And if things go wrong, if somebody wrongs us, the, um, the legal system can come in and punish them. So that okay, brings up another question then. So when times are good economically, are we more trusting? And if times are bad, are we less trusting? Yeah, there's really good evidence of that. And, and over time, as you know, we go into recessions, people trust less. They're a little bit more scared about, about risk and, and losing things. And then when things are good, we're more generous, we're a little less worried. And so it's one reason why the economy is linked to our moods and our, 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 our way of getting through the day, even though GDP you know, doesn't really matter personally to me, but it does affect our trust. So should we, people often feel bad, right? Like after they get tricked or pranked, they're always saying, oh man, how did I fall for that? But is it really their fault? It's, you know, most of the time it's not. People, when they get duped, especially if they've given money or or, or lost something important to them, they're almost too embarrassed. And that's actually become a real problem is these criminals know that when someone gets duped and they've, they've taken money, they're less likely to report it. And then, of course, the criminal is less likely to get caught. So if you are duped and if you've lost money, know, A, you're not alone. It's a billion-dollar industry, at least down here in the United States. Second, report it. Get, get the word out. It helps not only you. The sooner you do it, the, the warmer the trail is. But also helps other people because you can maybe uh, get this guy and prevent him from harming someone else. You know, I guess when it comes back to April Fool's Day, then, do we want to believe the ones that we like, perhaps, or something that appeals to us? 
Well, as a, one of my friends who is a, a guard in a maximum security prison, you know, if it feels it feels too good to be true, it's probably not true. And if something doesn't feel right, it's definitely not right. Yeah, but okay, we know that though, Jeff. There's a, <laughs> it's a saying for a reason, right? And yet yeah, we yeah. still we only we say it after we've realized that we were wrong. Right. And I think when people are, you know, this could be criminals, but it can also be sort of fraudsters that are just trying to trick you. They know all these techniques as well. And so that's what they're really looking for. People that are, say, you know, feeling lonely. Another really common one is if you're feeling cash strapped, right? So you're feeling like you don't have enough money. That's when you're going to be most vulnerable to ones that it's like, hey, give me this little bit of money. We'll put in crypto and you'll make a bunch more money. That's when people are the most vulnerable. So I think also being aware of the things that you're worried about. Once you know what that is, then you can be a little bit more resilient so that when someone tries to trick you using that vulnerability, you'll hopefully be a little bit more aware. Oh, that is so true. Uh, Jeff, thank you so much for that. My pleasure as always. That was fascinating. Jeff Hancock is a founding director of the Stanford Social Media Lab and the Harry and Norman Chandler Professor of Communication at Stanford University talking about gullibility. It's so true, though, like especially when it comes to being fooled on something like April Fool's Day. It also has to do with... The people perhaps that we know who know our vulnerabilities, and I was thinking about one that you maybe have seen over the weekend, but Sarah Pauly, the Canadian filmmaker who just won an Academy Award, right, for Best Adapted Screenplay, amazing achievement. Uh, she was pranked big time by her 11-year-old daughter on April Fool's Day. Her daughter wrote a letter to her, uh, supposedly from the Academy, telling her that a mistake had been made and they were going to have to take back her Academy Award that instead they were going to be giving it to the adapted screenplay for All Quiet on the Western Front and that they apologized and they hadn't wanted to, you know, make a big fuss about it earlier. They were trying to do it on the down low because they didn't want another Moonlight La La Land situation. And I guess they even did it with the letter. She did it, this 11-year-old, very clever, with the letterhead, had the name, the fake signature, the whole thing. And Sarah Pauly, for a hot minute, fell for it until, you know, her daughter was probably laughing hysterically at it. And again, her daughter would have known her vulnerability on that one, right? How incredibly proud she was, perhaps, of winning that Academy Award. And her daughter went for it with that one. So, yeah, maybe it's the ones we love sometimes who are the ones who are um, easiest to fool us. That's the one that works, right? Uh, If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. 